Well, let's uh, invite the Lord to guide us as we look into His Word. Gracious, most merciful, Heavenly Father, we come to You. Opening Your Word, inviting You. By Your Holy Spirit, to guide us into this truth. Pray you'll use it to encourage us and to challenge us to live out the truth, to keep our eyes fixed on you in the midst of all that we experience here in this place, the good, the bad, and the ugly. our hearts would be drawn to you, that we would live our lives to the glory of your holy name. We know that when we do that, we also receive the benefit of of experiencing the good you have for us. And so it's a win-win for us. And yet, Lord, we confess to you that so often in our flesh, we, are, we fight against it. We want to go our own way, do our own thing. We often think we know better. And so would you help us? Give us perspective. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you know, many products that we buy have labels sometimes warning labels. Um, For example, on a Duraflame fireplace log is the warning, caution, risk of fire. On a Batman costume for Halloween, it says, warning, cape does not enable user to fly. On a bottle of hair coloring, It says, do not use as an ice cream topping. On a cardboard sunshield, I'm sorry, a cardboard sunshield for a car, it says, do not drive with sunshield in place. And on a portable stroller, it says, caution, remove infant before folding for storage. I would imagine that originally warning labels were placed there to protect consumers. Now they're there to protect the manufacturer from getting sued. (laughs) Because we have some really uh, intelligent people in our society who need those kind of warnings. um, Or they will sue. Either way, whether they were there for our benefit or for the benefit of a manufacturer, warning labels are there to protect somebody. And in our text today, in Ecclesiastes 5, Solomon provides for us some warnings. Warnings to protect those in his day who were reading it for the first time, but also they provide help for us as well in our modern times. And there are three here that stand out as we read through chapter 5 that I want to point out to you that are helpful for us to keep in mind in the day in which we live. 
Allow me to go ahead and read Ecclesiastes chapter 5. He writes, guard your steps as you go to the house of God and draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they do not know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of a messenger of God, it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official and there are higher officials over them. After all, the king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves abundance with its income. This too is vanity. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what advantage? what is the advantage to the owners who uh, owners accept to look on? The sleeping of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he fathered a son, there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus he will die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anguish. Here's what I've seen to be good and fitting. To eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them, to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. And so here we have Solomon giving us some warnings. Warnings as we traverse this world under the sun. Right? Living under the sun, according to Solomon, is living as if this is all there is. As if there is nothing beyond this life. There is no God in charge who is at work in the things of this life. It's just living as if this is all there is. And so he's writing to warn us in a few areas here in regards to how we keep, how we think about these things and how we then live in light of that. And so the first 
warning he gives us in verses 1 through 7 is, do not worship the Lord with wrong motives. Do not worship the Lord from wrong motives. Um, in Psalm 81, Asaph is writing, and he's writing about worship, how we are to worship God properly. And he, so he talks about singing to the Lord and praising the Lord, raising a song in the times of harvest, in the times of, of different festivities in the nation of Israel. He reminds them of how God relieved their burden from the troubles they had in Egypt and, and these, these issues. But then he laments the fact, as if from God, right, how the people of Israel are not responding appropriately to God. He says, I, the Lord, am your God, verse 10, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. My people did not listen to my voice. Israel did not obey me. And, and he cries out, Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. God is lamenting through Asaph to the people that God would desire them to come into his presence, to respond to his goodness and his mercy, and yet they're not. And then he makes this statement in verse 15. Those who hate the Lord would pretend, pretend obedience to him. And then he says, and their time of punishment would be forever. Those who hate the Lord pretend obedience to him. Well, you just stop and think about that. And ask yourself, do I... Do I walk with God? Or do I just pretend? Do I go through the motions? Because that's the thing to do. Or do I really <laughs> want to walk with God? To follow Him? To worship Him with my life? Remember the the, the story of, um, of Saul, King Saul, when he was told by Samuel the prophet uh, to, to go and, and to, uh, uh, to kill uh, the, the Agagites and, and, and to destroy them and destroy all the, the, the sheep, the cattle, everything. And so he goes and battles, but instead of killing the king, he keeps the king alive and he keeps some of the nicest sheep, but everything else he destroys. And then Samuel comes to him and uh, says, what, what's going on? He said, well, I've, I've done what God told me to do. I obey the Lord. And he said, well, what is this bleeding of sheep I hear in my ears? Oh, well, you know, we kept the good sheep to worship the Lord. Well, you didn't obey God. Right? And then he says this in verses 22 and 23 of 1 Samuel 15. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as, in, as iniquity and idolatry. Because you've rejected the word of the Lord, He has rejected you from being king.
Solomon here is warning us. He says, guard your steps when you go into the house of God and draw near and listen rather than offering the sacrifice of fools. We need to approach God as a humble listener or humble learner, not a haughty loudmouth. You see, sometimes we get so comfortable in the presence of God or, or in the, the context of maybe corporate worship or maybe even your alone, your alone time with God. And we come with a, a sense of uh, arrogance rather than humility. We forget that we are coming before the Almighty One, the God of the universe, the Creator of all things. We, at times, can come very flippantly into His presence. Jesus gave us a, a great example of, of the, the contrast. In Luke 18, He tells a parable. And uh, Luke, Luke says it this way. He says, he, he told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. He said, two men went up to, to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. The other was a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not like other men. Swindlers, unjust, Adulterers, even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week and pay tithes of all that I get. What a great way to approach God. Haughty, loudmouth. Look at me, look at what I've done for you, God. I'm all that. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away from everyone else, was not even willing to lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me as the sinner. I am the wretched one. And Jesus said this, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. How do we approach God? Do we approach, well, what am I going to get out of today? Or do we approach with humility to say, Lord, I want to worship you. I want to honor you. You are worthy of my time, my energy. Whatever I have to bring, you're worthy of it. I come before you in humility. I like the way Exposer's commentary comments about this. says we, we should come before God in humility, recognizing His majesty and His right to our lives. We seek His guidance and listen to His words. The alternative is to suppose that offerings can substitute for a God-ordered life. That if I just 
If I just do my thing, if I just do my duty and I go to church regularly or I put some money in the offering box or I, or I do my token prayer or read a few verses every day, do my thing, that I've somehow appeased God. Some attempt to bribe God with these things, it says. And sometimes extreme concern over one issue is an unconscious screen against facing other issues. It is as though we call God's attention to the sacrifice we're making while being blind to some essential command that He makes. Sometimes we can be guilty within the context of the church, especially churches that have a high value on truth. We can be guilty of overemphasizing external behavior in such a way and completely dismiss the internal realities going on in someone's heart. And so we make the Christian life all about external activity and behavior. And never once do we consider what's going on in someone's heart. And Jesus always pushed us back to the heart and said, from the heart the mouth speaks. From the heart comes all kinds of bad behavior. And so instead of just focusing on the bad behavior, we ought to focus on the heart where the bad behavior comes from. And when we address the issues of the heart, the behavior will oftentimes take care of itself. We can be guilty of overemphasizing and criticizing people because they don't live a certain way on the outside, and yet we're critical, we're mean-spirited, we're gossiping, but we never address that reality with our own heart. And we can be worshiping God with wrong motives, thinking that somehow we have earned God's favor on our life by certain things that we do. And Jesus said in Matthew 15, addressing the issues of the heart, he quotes from Isaiah, he says, This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. We need to approach God as a humble learner. Lord, what do I have to learn? What is, it, what is in my life right now that you want to address, you want to work on, you want to do because you are the king. I am your humble servant. Rather than look at me and look at what all I've done for him. Secondly, we approach God with a healthy fear, not hasty vows. He goes on to talk in verses 4 through 7 about vows. He says, when you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying your vow. He takes no delight in fools. It's better that you not vow than that you vow and not pay. In Deuteronomy 23, we see the instructions for making a vow. Um, it says this in verses 21 to 23, When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it will be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. However, if you refrain from vowing, it will not be sin in you. You shall be careful to perform what goes out of your, mouth, of your lips, just as you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised. <clears throat> it says, don't make a commitment you're not willing to keep, especially to the Lord. Don't make the commitment. 
If you're going to commit something, then you better keep it. That's what, he, what he's saying. The context here, according to one commentator, is that these, these statements that he makes here in verses 4, 5, and 6 mean that fools seek to advance themselves before God with great vows and commitments. It's, it's these hasty uh, vows that you make to somehow appease God or to somehow get God to do what you want Him to do in a moment of desperation. You ever found yourself in a place where you desperately needed God to get you out of this circumstance or whatever, and you might have even said, God, if you, if you take care of this, man, I will. Blah, blah, blah. Well, God holds us to those things. <laughs> I was just sharing last, last week in our small group um, that uh, when, I was, when I went to, to, to uh, camp, First time as a young man, right out of right out of high school, and then I, you know, I thought I wanted to be an architect, and so I went to college for a year, and I realized this this isn't what I'm supposed to do. But I had no idea, and I was confused, and I was, I just didn't know, and I was wrestling with what it looked like to surrender to God, and and then I was I went up to camp to to work as a counselor for the summer, and I'm doing during training week of training before the kids are coming, I'm realizing, man, I am I am so ill-equipped to be a counselor. I have no idea what I'm doing. And I said, God, if you can use me, I will seriously consider serving you. Now, I, I don't know it was a hasty vow, but I certainly didn't know what I was saying. But I was, I was in a place where I said, Lord, I don't know what in the world I'm supposed to do with my life, but, but I, if if you, can, if you can do something and use this, that, that I have nothing to bring myself, if you can use me in this moment, just maybe you can use me in other ways, and I will seriously consider serving you. Well, God used me that week, and it was a little later that summer that God said, I want you to preach the gospel. I'm thankful for the call. And I'm thankful that he brought me to that place where I was so desperate. And I said, Lord, okay, whatever. But when we make a commitment to God, we need to fulfill it. I can't imagine my life had I not followed what God called me to do. And so it's not like God is saying, okay, well, you said it, man. I'm going to hold you to the fire, and, and it's going to be miserable, but guess what? You said it, so no. This is, when we make a commitment, God wants us to follow through, and God will use that in our lives. We should approach him. He says, why should you, God, be angry on account of words that you've spoken? Instead, fear God. You know, we've talked, when we looked at Proverbs, we talked about the fear of the Lord. And I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm still in the process of trying to understand all of that. But, but the best that I can understand as I look through the Scripture, and I've studied this some throughout what the Scripture says about the fear of the Lord, it begins with a recognition of who God is. It starts with acknowledging God. There is a God. And this is who He is. This is who He's revealed Himself to be. And as I look at this, and as I recognize who He is, I then respond to that. With worship, with humility, with, um, with 
prayer, with, with under, trying to understand more, and with some response that's appropriate to who God is. And then that leads then to a submission of my life to that God. And living then a life under the direction of this God that I've acknowledged and I've recognized to be true and is worthy of my worship and my submission, my yielding of my life. And as we walk in that, we walk in, I believe, the fear of God. Michael Reeves has written a book, and I just started reading it. It's called Rejoice and Tremble. And the subtitle is The Surprising Good News of the Fear of the Lord. He says this uh, in, in the, just the second chapter when he talks about this healthy fear. He, he says this is an ecstasy of love and joy that senses how overwhelmingly kind and magnificent, good and true God is. And that therefore leans on him in staggered praise and faith. I often think of fear as such a negative thing. And believe me, throughout Scripture, for those who turn their back on God, there ought to be a real fear of God, afraid of God, because God is capable of bringing His wrath. And we know that one day when it's all said and done, those who are outside of Jesus Christ will experience the wrath of God in what the Bible calls Hell, Hades, and then ultimately the lake of fire. But for those who are in Christ, who are covered by the blood of Jesus, we don't fear that wrath. But we have a healthy respect, and, and he talks about an exuberant joy and excitement about who God is. And we walk in light of that. Humbly, but joyfully. So, Solomon warns us, do not worship the Lord with wrong motives. Don't come in as if you own the place. As if you're all that. And don't make vows you don't intend to keep. Be careful in the commitments we make. Because God holds us to them. Be thoughtful. Respect the Almighty One that we have been privileged to be in a relationship with. How many times have we come into church? We start singing the songs. And we're, you know, we're thinking about what's going on at home, what happened this past week. We're, we're just kind of, I mean, I know the song, so I'm just uh, singing it through. Not once thinking about what I'm singing. I have to believe that's disrespectful to God. And yet, I've been guilty of it. So I just remind us, again, guard your steps as you enter the house of God. Draw near and listen. This, if you're going to give time to the Lord, give time to the Lord. And let's be careful as we approach the Holy One. But he has invited us. This is the thing we need to remember. He's invited us to come because he loves us. It's not that we come 
trembling, we come rejoicing and realizing we get the privilege to come before the one true and living God. Well, then he, he gets political. In verses 8 and 9, he says, you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice in the province. That is, the government is not doing its job. In fact, the government's one doing the oppressing. Don't be, don't be alarmed by that. Don't be shocked, because this is the reality of it. And so I think the warning is, do not trust the government as the ultimate answer. Don't think that even if we get the person we want in uh, to certain offices, that that's the answer. Because, <clears throat> number one, the government is a flawed human institution. It's a flawed human institution. One commentator said this, the reader is warned not to be shocked if corruption in high places is discovered. The mere existence of many levels of government administered by many officials makes at least some corruption inevitable. A certain justified cynicism is displayed here. And that is, if enough people have opportunity to enrich themselves by abuse of political power, some are bound to succumb to the temptation. We've all heard the statement, right? Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. It happens. It's the reality. This is not the only country that has corrupt government. But we live in a country where we have at least some say. And we ought to have a say. As citizens of this country, we ought to say what we can say. We ought to pray for and vote for those men and women who will honor God in their positions. We ought to do our part in that. But we need to understand the government is not our Savior. Right? That's, we need to know that. At the end of the day, we're here to advance the cause of Christ. We have been placed here and left here on planet Earth after Christ saved us to be as witnesses to those around us. Not necessarily to spend all of our energy trying to make something in this world better. This world is going to pot and it will be destroyed at one point. And again, there's nothing wrong with doing our part and praying toward and working toward in the time that we have. But we must always keep in mind whether, whether we're doing something for political things or whether we're doing something at work, whatever it is, we are in some ways using our energy to advance the things in this world. Right? Sometimes that's our job. But we should never make it our ultimate goal. We ought to use the opportunities through all of this to represent Jesus Christ. Philip Yancey speaks to this in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew. And I'm just going to read a few things he says here. He says, I must say, I worry about, and this is written, I believe, back in the 90s. I worry about the recent surge of power among U.S. Christians who seem to be focusing more and more on political means. Once Christians were ignored or scorned, now they are courted by every savvy politician. Evangelicals especially are identified with a certain political stance. So much so that the news media uses the terms evangelical and right, religious right interchangeably. 
when I ask a stranger what an evangelical Christian, what is an evangelical Christian, I get an answer something like this. Well, someone who supports family values and opposes homosexual rights and abortion. This trend troubles me, he says, because the gospel of Jesus was not primarily a political platform. The issues that confront Christians in a secular society must be faced and addressed and legislated. And the democracy gives Christians every right to express themselves. But we dare not invest so much in the kingdom of this world that we neglect our main task of introducing people to a different kingdom. One based solely on God's grace and forgiveness. Passing laws to enforce morality serves a necessary function to dam up evil. But it never solves human problems. If a century from now all historians can say about evangelicals of the 90s is that they stood for family values and that we will have failed the mission Jesus gave us to accomplish in communicating God's reconciling love to sinners. Jesus did not say all men will know you are my disciples if you just pass laws, suppress immorality, and restore decency to family and government, but rather if you love one another. He made that statement the night before his death, a night when human power, represented by the might of Rome and the full force of the Jewish religious authorities, collided head-on with God's power. And then a little later he says, ironically, if the United States is truly sliding down a slippery moral slope, which we know 20-some years later, it is. That may better allow the church, as it did in Rome and in also in China, to set up a new sign which is full of promise. He says, I would prefer, I must admit, to live in a country where the majority of people follow the Ten Commandments, act with civility toward one another, and bow their heads once a day to a bland, nonpartisan prayer. I feel a certain nostalgia or social climate of the 1950s in which I grew up. But then he says this, but if that environment does not return, I will not lose any sleep. As America slides, I will work and pray for the kingdom of God to advance. If the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church, the contemporary political scene hardly offers much hope. We need to be reminded <clears throat> not to put our trust in the government. While we are very concerned, are we not? Very, very concerned. But it's a flawed human institution. It will never, ever ultimately give us the satisfaction that we desire. That's only found in Christ. But we also need to know, a flawed government is better than no government. I think that's what his point is in the last verse of uh, verse 9. After all, a king who cultivates the land is an advantage to us. And we, all we have to do is look at the book of Judges to see that no government is not a good idea. There was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's not a good situation. We're getting close to that. Because even though we have government, the government doesn't know what they're doing. Because they don't have a perspective that we have. And so it's our job to be the pillar in support of the truth. That's what we're called to. 1 Timothy chapter 3. The church. And so we've got to stand in the truth. We've got to uphold the truth. We've got to proclaim the truth. And we've got to live the truth. 
We've got to be careful that we do not get sidelined by becoming too political that we lose our distinctiveness as a spiritual entity. We uphold the truth in a society that is going to hell in a handbasket. We maintain morality. And I, I, I confess to you, it's, it's hard to know how to hold that balance. Because I get as frustrated as anyone else does with the climate that things are. And in my flesh, I want to react. But we must hold this reality in check by remembering Jesus still sits on the throne. The king is still in charge. Even when the government that governs our individual lives is nowhere close to that. And here's the king of Israel saying, it isn't always good. Don't be surprised. Because people are people. And when people are in power, that power corrupts people. And so we realize that we cannot trust the government as the ultimate answer. Thirdly then, verses 10 through 20, he once again returns to a topic we addressed last week, and that is money. Do not rely on riches for your security. And he gives five statements, if you will, about money that we have to understand. And that is, we see here in these five statements, really the curse of money. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor will he who loves abundance with its income. This is vanity. Five things about money. And I'm gonna, I, wanna, I love the way David Jeremiah states it because it's so succinctly. I'm going to use his words. Number one, the more you have, the more you want. Right? One who loves money is never satisfied with money. When John Rockefeller was the richest man in the United States, he was interviewed, right? And they said, how much is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. That's our nature. When we make money too much, that's the curse of money, is when, when we start getting more of it, we want more of it, and we are never satisfied. The more you have, the more you want. Secondly, the more you have, the more you spend. Verse 11, when good things increase, those who consume them increase. Someone once said, expenses rise to meet available income. The more you have, the more you spend. And somebody else said one time, the, high, the, 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 the cost, I'm sorry, the high cost of living is really the cost of high living. Right? We mistake that. We think, wow, man, everything's really expensive. And it is. It's getting more all the time. But is it possible that we also live above what we should? The more we have, the more we spend. And I think as believers, we need to keep in mind it all belongs to the Lord. We are stewards of it. How much does He want me to spend on myself? And how much does He want me? If He gives me more, that's more opportunity for me to give away to other people rather than to enjoy more for myself all the time. And again, it's always a balance. It's always a balance. The third is the more you have, 
the more you worry. Verse 12, he says, the sleep of the working man is pleasant. And he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich does not allow him to sleep, probably because he's worried about his money. The more you have, the more you worry. Fourthly, the more you have, the more you lose. Right? 13, 14. The grievous evil which I've seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. And when those riches are lost through bad investment, is nothing to support his child. The more you have, the more you can lose. And then lastly, the more you have, the more you leave behind. <laughs> right? We came into this world, he says, with nothing. We leave with nothing. We're not taking it with us. As we said a couple weeks ago, you can write a check, but you're not going to cash it up there. And so we leave behind. And, and, and then there's always that concern that was also expressed earlier in the book of Ecclesiastes. What if I leave it to somebody who isn't wise? What if I worked my whole life to, to, to get all this, and then I leave it to a, an unwise son or daughter, or someone else picks up and takes and uses it, and they don't use it the way that I would have intended it to? That's a heartache. And so these are the things that Solomon, who was a very rich man, is contemplating the reality of the curse of money. But then in verses 18 through 20, he talks about the gift of God. Here's what I've seen to be good and fitting, to eat and to drink and to enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. And so one of the gifts of God is the ability to earn money. It's, it's a gift. When we work for what we have, we appreciate what we have. We then take care of what we have. We utilize what we have in appropriate ways because we understand the value of a dollar and we understand the value of what that dollar buys. When we're handed everything without working for it, it doesn't mean the same. We won't take care of it the same. We will, we will spend it willy-nilly and not have any concern about where the next one's coming from. This is why. Biblically speaking, it's so wrong for a government to hand out money to people who aren't willing to work. It's never been God's intention. Even in the Old Testament, God established a welfare system for the poor. And it was called gleaning the fields. And the rich people had a field and they were supposed to leave the corners of the field untouched so that the poor people who didn't own land could come behind them and work for their food. And they would have enough. God knows human nature. He knows how it's supposed to be. It is a gift of God to be able to work. There are some who do not have the ability. And I believe that we should help them who do not have the ability. But we have to be very discerning to know the difference between laziness and inability. And the second thing he says is the ability to enjoy money is a gift of God. 
right? To enjoy it. Furthermore, verse 19, every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and to rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God. We need money to live, but we cannot live for money. We can enjoy it along the way. Enjoy the things that money provides. And we live in a world, we live in a, a country where there's so much to enjoy. And we've been given the privilege to enjoy some of this stuff. I don't think we, we need to be stingy and hoard it all to ourselves, but we can enjoy it, but we also need to be generous. And you read through the book of Proverbs and look at what it says about generosity. Man, a generous person will never have a need. Right? He who waters will himself be watered. And a generous man will be prosperous. This is what the Proverbs say. But we, the gift of God is to enjoy what we have. When we see money as a gift from our Savior, we can enjoy it. But when we see money as our Savior, we will not enjoy it. We will hoard it. We'll never have enough of it. We'll be looking to something that cannot satisfy to satisfy, and it will be a miserable life. I don't have statistics in front of me, but I, I know I've heard so many times of wealthy people who are the most miserable people in the world. Because, they, again, they never have enough. In fact, I, I was reading a little bit about John Rockefeller when he was 53 years old. Again, the richest man in the United States. His body was rizzled with all kinds of sickness because he was so worried about his money. And when he discovered philanthropy, and started giving away his money, his health improved. He lived to be in his 90s. A relatively healthy man. Why? <laughs> because he moved from the curse of money to the gift of God. And realized. So the bottom line in all this is, in God we trust. Nothing else is sufficient. Trusting God. As we're trusting the Lord, we can come before Him. We can worship Him appropriately, humbly, learning from Him, walking in the fear of the Lord. We don't trust governing authorities. We don't trust uh, our employer. We don't trust anyone else. We trust the Lord ultimately. And we can obviously trust people, but we don't ultimately trust. We trust the Lord. We walk in His ways. And then we don't rely on wealth, riches for our security. We trust the Lord. And I know for myself, and this is probably going to be true for you, it, it, this is just a constant reminder. When I start thinking about, you know, retiring one day, I know, I know, I know people will say, well, you never retire from the work of God, obviously. But one day you're going to get sick of me. Uh, one day you're going to say, you know what, you just can't do this anymore. And, and so I'm going to have to step aside and someone else is going to step in. And that's, that's wonderful. It's the way it should be. But as I think about, you know, I have to keep reminding myself, God has always provided for me and my wife and my family. And he will continue to do that even if I'm too old and decrepit to, to do something to make money. And so we rest in that. We do our part, 
right? We save, we do those things, but we also have to ultimately trust. Trust the Lord. Nothing else is sufficient. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for your, your goodness, your mercy that we sang about earlier. Our sins, they are many, but your mercy is more. Lord, when we think about our failures, our, our faults, what we bring to the table, Lord, we, are, we realize we have no right to come before you. We have no right to, to speak to you. We have no right to worship you. We have no right to, to anything but your love, your mercy, your grace is more than our sin. And you have covered us with the blood of your Son who gave himself willingly on our behalf on the cross of Calvary. That through him, we can live. We can enjoy the life you've given us and live it to the glory of your name. Lord, we want to trust you with our lives. <laughs> In some ways, Father, I acknowledge it's easier to trust you for our eternal salvation than to trust you for tomorrow and the things that I have to do. And so, God, teach us, help us to walk in a trusting relationship with you. For you are worthy of our trust you are good. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.